the book of Acts, what we see again and again is the things that happened thousands of years ago. You know, we're in a very different culture. Lots of things have changed, but God is the same God. And his desire to renew, renew people, to renew families and communities is the same. And so uh, let's, let's pray again um, as we enter into his word. Lord, I thank you so much. Thank you so much, God, that you are our rock. Age to age, Lord, your faithfulness stands. We praise you and we ask, Lord, today that regardless of what's happening in our lives at this moment, Lord, that you would lift up our eyes and that we would put our faith and our confidence in your unchanging character. We thank you, Lord, that you are one that we can depend on, the one that we can trust in. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so last week, we, we've kind of been following Paul and his buddies around Macedonia and Greece in the mid-first century. And last week, we were in a little town called Berea, where uh, Paul, as he always does, goes into the synagogue. He's preaching the good news about Jesus being the Messiah. And uh, the, Jewish, the Jewish people there in Berea, they are, they are noble-minded. And they examine the scriptures to see if what Paul is saying is true. And they conclude that, yes, it is, it is true. And so many of them put their trust in Christ. But a group of Jews from Thessalonica come and they say, hey, these guys are troublemakers. And they stir up this big revolt. And, and now Paul's got to run again. He's, he's got to flee yet another city. It just happens over and over and over again. Uh, we pick up the story in Acts 17, verse 15. We'll pick it up from the last verse from last week. So verse 15. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. I was going to look that up on YouTube to see how to pronounce that. And then it snowed, and I was shoveling snow all morning, so I didn't. I don't really know how it's pronounced. Where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, is that one? I don't know. Which one do you like more? Maybe we'll take a poll at some point. Uh, and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So here we go. Here's Paul in Athens. Let's talk about Athens a little bit. Of all the cities we've been in, this is probably the most familiar, most well-known. Obviously, it's an ongoing, it's, its existence has been ongoing. It's one of the oldest cities in the world. Uh, it was the, uh, it's called the cradle of Western civilization, the birthplace of democracy, the dialect of Greek that started in Athens, spread throughout the whole kind of Roman world, became the, uh, the dominant language. You know, if, if, you, if you spoke two different languages, 
that, that kind of Athenian Greek would be the, the common language that you, would, that you would speak to communicate with each other. This was a great city. It was the city of, of Aristotle and, and Plato and Socrates. This was, this was a city that was kind of the intellectual capital of the ancient world. And it, it, um, by the time Paul was there in the first century, its, its luster, its status had kind of worn off. It had been conquered by Rome 100, 200 years before. It was, it was so respected, it was given this title of a free city. Uh, and, and even despite of its lack or its loss of status, it was still, it was still kind of a center for, for intellectual, kind of philosophical ventures. Uh, this, this, was, this was kind of the biggest stage. I mean, Paul is coming with the biggest idea possible, right? There's one God, he became flesh, he made his dwelling among us. Huge, huge stuff. This stage of Athens is kind of the biggest stage for the biggest idea. The smartest and most educated people that Paul has come across in his journey are right here in Athens. So if I'm Paul, this is what I kind of think. If I put myself in Paul's shoes, it's been a pretty tough go, right? Like city after city after city, it's rejection, and it's persecution, and it's imprisonment, and it's attempted assassinations. It's not easy for Paul. And now he's in Athens. This is a pretty intimidating place, right? This, this, this crowd, this setting, how is the gospel going to play in a place like this? Like, like there's, there's a certain level of intimidation there, and then he's by himself, because he doesn't have, he doesn't have uh, Silas and Timothy with him, yet he's still waiting for them. So I'm thinking, if I'm Paul, I'm wondering, God, can I take a break? Right? Can I just take it easy for a little bit? Because I've been going pretty hard. It's been a lot of rejection. Maybe I could just, you know, be a tourist a little bit. It's Athens, you know? It's, it's the, one of the most famous cities of the world. Maybe travel around, snap some selfies, get some souvenirs, you know, for the kids back at home. Maybe get some Ray-Bans, sit on the beach for a little while. Like, just take a break, right? Paul doesn't do that. He just, he doesn't seem to be able to turn, like, turn off, you know? And, and I think um, he needed Sabbath. He needed rest. He was a human. He still needed those things. But, but for Paul, his calling as an apostle to make Jesus known was not just a job that he worked nine to five on weekdays, right? And then, you know, weekends and, and uh, weeknights and holidays was like party boy Paul time. Like, that's not how he operated. It was, it, he was an apostle all the time. His calling to make Jesus known, that was his heart. It was, it was kind of part of his identity. It's, it's, just, it's what he did wherever he went. It wasn't easy, but that's what, that's what God had called him to. And so when he goes to Athens... Even though he's alone and he's coming from one rejection after the next, he can't help but get engaged with the mission to make Jesus known in that place. And I actually, I actually don't think that's just a Paul thing. I think that's actually a Christian thing. Uh, we have a different calling. We've got different personalities, different wirings. It's, we're not going to do the same thing Paul did. We can, most of us can thank the Lord for that. But... Paul did write to the Colossians years later, and he said, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, word or deed is oriented around your identity in Christ. 
This is what Sheila was testifying to in her baptism, that when you're baptized, when you trust in Jesus, you are living a new life that is oriented around him. Whatever you do, and, and you want, as, as a Christian, if, if, by the way, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm so glad you're here today. If you are a follower of Jesus, you know that your job is to become more like him, right? Like that's what it means to be a, a disciple, to be a Christian, is to become like him. Well, here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus is really, really passionate about people knowing him. Like that's really what drives him. I mean, what we talked about last week, the whole of the Bible, if, if that is God's self-revelation to us, that's, that's his love, that's his desire to make himself known to us, that we would actually be in relationship with him. And, and we see, we see uh, passages in particular that speak about God's heart for people to know who he is. Uh, Jesus tells these parables in Luke about lost things being found. And he summarizes by saying, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. Heaven throws a party every time something like this happens this morning. Every time someone comes to faith in Jesus, there's a party in heaven because this is God's heart. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here today, you need to know this, that there is a God and he passionately, deeply desires for you to walk with him in relationship. And he's done everything necessary for that to happen in Jesus Christ. You need to know that. But as followers of Jesus, you need to know that if you are going to be a Christian, if you're gonna be a follower of Jesus, then his heart needs to be your heart. His heart to seek out the lost needs to be your heart as well, even if it works out a little bit differently than it did for Paul. Now, I know when I say that, some of us get a little bit, um, a little bit anxious. Like this idea of evangelism, sharing the good news with others is a little bit scary, isn't it? And that's partly because there are a bunch of reasons. But one of the reasons is because we've seen a lot of bad examples of this kind of thing. I don't know if you've seen these videos. I've seen these viral YouTube videos of some street preacher who will set up a speaker and a microphone and, uh, you know, he's just start, he just starts like provoking the crowds, right? And he's like sticking the microphone in their face. He's getting them to say things. And, uh, and then he posts a video that's like, the, the title is something like, you know, angry satanic atheist, like yells at street preacher and everyone's clicking it. I want to see this. I want to see this, right? And I don't know. I, I just don't know about the... I don't know about the fruit of it. I don't know about the posture there. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's actually the best example of what evangelism looks like. And so what I want to do this week and next week, especially, is I want to look at, at one of the greatest evangelists in church history. I want to look at Paul. And he comes to Athens, and, and Athens, Athens is, again, one of these places where we see cultural engagement taking place in a, in a pretty profound and deep way. And so what we want to do is the next two weeks, look at how Paul engages this culture with the gospel and look at what we can learn from that and how we can be shaped and formed in that as well. Does that sound good to you? I don't care. I'm going to do it anyways. That's what's happening. So um, what we're going to do today especially is we're going to look at the things that happen before Paul even opens his mouth. So before he ever speaks... There are a few, we'll call them elements of pre-evangelism, preliminary movements or things that Paul does or things that happen inside of him before he speaks. And so this might be helpful for us 
uh, for some of us to get really anxious about speaking, well, here, here, today's easy, okay? Next week's going to get a bit more challenging, but today's easy. It's the stuff that happens before you open your mouth. Um, three things I'm going to look at this morning. So start in verse 16, key verse. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. What's the first thing Paul does? I think he, he sees he sees that the city is full of idols. Now the word see, that's one that we could brush over pretty quickly, right? It's, it's a pretty common word. We don't really think a whole lot about that. But we know that there are different kinds of seeing, don't we? Like I am not, I am not an observant person at all. And if you need evidence for that, you can ask Carolyn afterwards for examples, real life examples. But like we were, like just the, 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 this week, we were driving down like a main street in our community and I see this like townhome complex and I'm like, oh, they must have just repainted that. It looks really good. And she goes, Craig, that's been like that for six months. Like we drive down that road every single day. I'm like, wow, it's incredible. It's brand new. No, it's not brand new. So, so there's different kinds of seeing, right? When I'm driving, I think like I, I, am, I am watching, I am seeing. I'm not a terrible driver, but I got a lot of things in my mind. And so I'm not, I'm not very observant when I'm driving. But when I go for walks, when I go for prayer walks, then, then I'm, I'm seeing things in a different way. I notice like the garbage that people are throwing out. I, I, I notice what people are watching on TV in their homes. That sounds creepy. I don't like walk up to their house. I'm not like, not like peering at their window. It's just like some people have their blinds open. You get what I mean. So, so you just notice, you, you notice things that are going on in a way that you maybe don't if, if you're going faster, right? You're really observing, you're noticing and, and that kind of careful, discerning, noticing, that, that's the kind of thing that Paul is, is doing in Athens. And, and that comes out really clearly in verse 23 where he says, I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. Same uh, Greek root word as in verse 16. It's a really fun word to say. The Greek word is thaereo. Isn't, that, isn't that so much fun? This is how I have fun. You maybe have fun by going snowboarding. I have fun by saying Greek words. So thereo uh, is where we get the English word theater from. And so it's, it's, this, uh, it's, it's watching and, and understanding and, and interpreting. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's that kind of watching. That's what Paul is doing as he's going around the city. Now, a few things we could take from that. One is that Paul is not a passive consumer of culture, which is kind of how we're trained to, um, to take in culture, isn't it? Just to kind of be a passive consumer. Watch as YouTube just scrolls from one thing to the next to the next, and you're just kind of taking it in. You know, when I was, uh, when I was a teenager uh, in youth group, our youth pastor would do this thing where he would show, uh, he would, he would, we would watch a movie like The Matrix, uh, we would watch a movie, and he would, I, I look back at this, and I'm like, man, this required so little prep as a youth pastor. I don't know if that's why we did, but we just watched The Matrix, but here was the, here was the hitch. We had a sheet of paper, and we had to mark down all the swear words in, in the movie. <laughs> Uh, so like not like writing them out, that would have been bad. But you know, like D words, S words, A words. And you just kind of like, you're just, you're tallying them. So you're watching this movie and you're frantically tallying like every swear word, every like objectionable thing, like all of these. You're like, you're keeping, you're keeping a scorecard of all the evil in the movie, right? And I think that was, um, it was interesting. Um, 
it, it probably was not like the perfect example of, of uh, actively discerning culture, but it was something, you know? It was, we were watching this stuff and we were like, okay, what's actually being told to us? What are we actually seeing? It seems to me that when Paul walked around, he wasn't just, hey, I'm a tourist. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to enjoy this. He was going, what, is this, what does this mean? What is what I'm seeing meaning? Another thing we see from this is that Paul seems to do this before, again, again before he actually talks. I, I get the sense, and, and, and I don't know for sure, but it seemed like first he walked around, noticed things, and then he starts to have conversations. It seems to me that Paul wanted to understand the culture that he was engaging the gospel with. He wanted to listen carefully before speaking. And um, I feel like this is really important because we sometimes tend to denounce things, react to things without ever really trying to understand them or ask questions. It's kind of like the, um, the people in Thessalonica from two weeks ago who heard this rumor that Paul was speaking about another king. And they all assumed immediately that he was proposing a competitor to Caesar. And so they flip out. They have this huge mob, this huge riot, not on the basis of what Paul has actually said, but on the basis of what they've heard somebody else say that he might have said. And we see this all the time in today's social media world where people have this like lightning trigger happy response to things before they've actually tried to understand. What if we as followers of Jesus actually were a very different kind of people? If we bore witness to a different way of doing things where we listened and asked questions and, and where we understood the, the viewpoints of, of the people around us so well that we could articulate them and they could say, yes, that's exactly what I think. That's how I view the world. See, doing that doesn't mean that we agree with those viewpoints. Actually, it may serve to strengthen our own convictions and our beliefs. Seeing how people worship other idols and understanding why they're drawn to those idols might make us more grateful that we have a living God, that we have Jesus Christ. You see what I mean? You listen, you understand. It not only strengthens perhaps our own Christian convictions, but it also gives us a door. It gives us an opening, which is what it did for Paul in Athens. He's, he's looking around carefully. He notices especially this altar made to an unknown God, and he's, he's going to speak into that. He's, he's, he, that's going to be the, the opening for him. And then, then the third thing we see from this is that what he's especially noticing is the idolatry of the city. And I think that's an important point as well, that, that as we are taking note of our culture and our world and the kinds of views that exist, what we are especially trying to notice is, is how people worship. What do they worship? Why do they worship those things? What do they believe about God, about humans, about the world, and why do they believe those things? So that's kind of the first movement, is, is Paul seeing, noticing, discerning the culture around him. Second thing, we see him do, well, it's actually not something he does. It's something that happens in his heart as a result of his seeing. He's greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. That word distressed means that he was, he was cut to the heart. He was provoked. He was moved, even angered by what he saw. 
And this word is the same word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe God at various points, especially when it comes to idolatry. Uh, Isaiah 65, God says, All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations. A people who continually provoke me. That's the same word as the distressed here. Provoke me to my very face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of brick. Those last couple of phrases refer to idolatry. God is saying, I, I am trying to draw these people to myself and they refuse, they resist, they're hard-headed, they're hard-hearted. And so I'm distressed, I'm provoked because, because of this. So that, that's how God reacts to idolatry. He's deeply moved by it because he wants people to know him. And, and when people say, no, I don't want you, God, I want to follow after these other idols, that moves God's heart. And so when Paul is in Athens, and he sees how people have run after all of these other gods, he is moved in his heart in the same way that he, see, that, he, that he knows God is moved. Because this is, again, this is what happens, right? When we're followers of Jesus, we become like him. Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians that as we behold the glory of Christ, we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. We are becoming like him. We're being transformed into his image, which means that if something breaks God's heart, then it should break our heart too. So that's the question. Is what breaks God's heart, the thing that breaks our hearts, is, is the thing that moves God, that, that angers him, the same things that anger us? Or are we most angry when somebody cuts us off in traffic or when our sports team loses, which you know as, as Vancouverites, you have to get used to quite a bit. You know, is that, is that the thing that angers you the most or is it, is it, is it the idolatry of our society? Is what distresses you the fact that that something like abortion is so not only tolerated, but even advocated? Is it, is it the, the breakdown of family structures and the widespread sexual immorality that exists? And if it is those things, is it also the, the, the opioid crisis in our city? Is it also the, the stories of residential school survivors? Is it also knowing that there are people who are ill-treated because of their skin color? Are those things that, that break our hearts and that anger us? Because this is the thing, right? If, if our hearts are really going to be formed into God's heart, it's not just the idols that our political team is against that, that move us. But all of sin, all of the ways that humans deviate and, and, and separate themselves from God's created intent is what breaks God's heart, what breaks your heart and my heart. Because if, it, if it's not, and we're all growing in this, it's, it's a process, but, but if, if, we're not, if we're not moved at all by the sin, by the idolatry that exists around us, then are, are we really following Jesus? Because that's kind of a mark of a follower of Jesus. That's, that's what Paul does. That's what happens to Paul. Now, I want to acknowledge that when we talk about these kinds of things, about being moved uh, because of the false worship and false ideas of other people, that that, in our Canadian culture, sounds, sounds intolerant. 
It sounds bigoted, especially with things like sexual immorality or abortion that are so, like those are such taboo topics in our day. You start talking about that. I mean, we're, we're getting a little worried here, right? Like what's next? Church field trip to Granville Street, burn down half the block, you know, and holy righteous indignation. Like, you know, like, is that because that, that's the kind of thing that people will point to in church history and go, this is pretty dangerous. When you start, you know, emotion starts to get into this, it, it gets pretty dangerous. That's how we Canadians feel, right? Don't show any emotion. Don't express anything at all. A few thoughts about that. Uh, one is that the, the thought, the opinion that um, it's wrong to say that your view is right and other views are wrong, other forms of worship are wrong, that is itself a view. That, it's, that is itself is an opinion and people who hold that opinion believe that that is the right opinion to hold and that people who think that their view is right and other views are wrong are wrong. Do you see what's happened? They're guilty of the exact same thing. Tolerance in our culture really is only for those who share the same value of tolerance. And if you are deemed intolerant, then those who are tolerant are going to be intolerant of the intolerant. Right? Do you, I, I know I'm, this is very confusing. But do you understand what I'm saying? Nod, like, blink, whatever. I don't know, whatever you want to do. Um, that, that's kind of, so, so the, that, the idea of tolerance, I think, is a bit of, it's a bit of a sham. It's a bit of an illusion. Because inevitably, different views, different forms of worship, different beliefs about God are simply going to clash. They're not going to be compatible. And I actually, I think I hear that more and more, that that, that kind of illusion of tolerance in our society is, is maybe not as dominant as it was maybe even a decade ago, that more and more there is more uh, kind of a direct and explicit um, rejection of certain people in our society, saying, no, 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 those views aren't acceptable. They have no place in our world. So I think that's happening more, which then raises the question, if tolerance, if this kind of pluralism uh, where, oh, everything is totally fine, everything's okay, if that's actually an illusion, and it's inevitable that there are going to be conflicting, incompatible views about these things, which is what Paul encounters everywhere he goes in the book of Acts, then the question is, how do you deal with those differences? How do you deal with that incompatibility? What's, what's, the, what's the outworking of that? And we're going to look at next week a bit more how Paul responds in Athens. But the, the long, for long story, to make a long story short, I, I think as a follower of Jesus, we are called by our Lord to love our enemies. We're told that our battle is not against humans, it's not against flesh and blood, but against those spiritual forces that exist behind idolatry, exist behind those ideas of false worship. Which means that if you are faithful to Jesus, you will want to persuade people of the one true God. You will want to be used by him to make him known, but you will never impose it on other people. It's not the way that we're called to do this. Paul in, in Corinthians says, we're not, we're not to be the moral police. We're not, to hold, we're, not, we're not to expect others to live the way that we're called to live. So the church is kind of this counterculture within culture as a whole. Not imposing itself on others, but inviting people in. You see what I mean? So as, as a Christian, I mean, for, for Paul, he, um, he comes into cities. There's this clash of views. He persuades some. Others drive him out, and he willingly goes. He doesn't raise a military kind of response 
because the weapons that he's been called to fight with, are, it's, it's the armor of God. It's, it's salvation and truth and faith and righteousness and peace and the word of God. That's, that's the armor of God. That's what we're called to fight with. So you love your enemies. You, you, you live with the character of Jesus. You seek to persuade people without imposing things on them. And, and you, if, if there's anger, if there's distress, that's directed at those spiritual forces that exist behind idolatry, behind false worship. You with me so far? So that's kind of the second movement, is that, that heart response of distress to seeing the idols. Now there's one more thing I think that Paul does before he opens his, his mouth. Um, we're, we're kind of right there where he is, is talking. But the other thing he does is that he places himself in certain locations. So verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. It's two places that Paul kind of locates himself in in Athens. One is the synagogue. We've seen that again and again. Every time Paul goes to a city, if there is a synagogue, that's where he goes first. The logic, again, is that God had called Israel, blessed Israel to make Israel a blessing. These are uh, the promises of the Messiah were Israel's promises, Israel's scriptures. So wherever Paul goes, he goes there first. He goes to the synagogue, he goes to the Jews, and then from there go, goes out. So that's kind of the pattern. But we also know that the synagogue would have been incredibly comfortable for Paul. I mean, this is what, he was, he was a rabbi. This is what he grew up with. These were his people. Everywhere he went, the synagogue would have felt a little bit like home away from home. Similar kind of customs, similar kinds of people, right? I, I relate to that a little bit because when I, was, when I was in my early 20s, I spent a year as an intern in a church in Alberta, rural Alberta. And it was like the town, the, the church, it was wonderful, but it was very, very different from what I was accustomed to. It was, um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was just very, it was kind of out of my element, and then the year after that, I, I moved here to the Lower Mainland. And I started working in a Mennonite church. And I grew up Mennonite. Uh, and it's kind of like when you go to a Mennonite church, especially ones that have a lot of like ethnic, Mennonite's a weird thing. It's kind of, it's, it's faith, but it's also ethnicity. They're tied together. And so whenever you go to a Mennonite church, you get the, uh, the same kind of Mennonite jokes. I'm not going to tell them to, well, I'll tell you one. No, it's not, it's not going to, it won't make any sense to you, but this is like a Mennonite joke. What do you call a Mennonite poet? Corny Rhymer. Doesn't make, so Rhymer is like a Mennonite last name. Cor, anyways, Corny is also a common Mennonite first name. See, bad jokes, right? So, so Mennonite jokes, Mennonite foods, everybody's got the same last names because they're all related to each other. So when you go to, uh, when, you go, when you meet a Mennonite, you play this game. It's called the Mennonite game, not very creatively. And basically it's trying to figure out which ancestors you have in common. And usually you only have to go back like two or three generations because the gene pool is pretty small. Anyways, so every time you go to a Mennonite church, you feel, if, you, if you've grown up Mennonite, well, this, this is my people, right? This feels very, very comfortable. And so I kind of get like, like Paul going to the synagogue. No matter where he went, he maybe didn't know anybody, but the synagogue was the comfortable place. It was the easy place in some ways for him to be. He got it. He understood these people. But it's not the only place Paul locates himself in in Athens. We read that he was in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Now, when you read marketplace, 
You probably think like Superstore, like Paul's just wandering up and down Superstore talking to people in the frozen food section. But the marketplace in a Greek city was, uh, it was the center of public life. It was, it was the place where you had, you know, military celebrations, performances, speeches. Uh, it was littered with busts and idols and statues. This is just, this was kind of where social life happened in a Greek city. One of the places was in, in the marketplace. And I think for Paul, at least in his earlier years, this would have been incredibly uncomfortable for him to be in a place like this. Because, because you've got the, the idolatry and you've got all of these people, these, these pagan Gentiles. And, and so that would have been probably off limits to him at a former time. But here he is in Athens and he goes right into the marketplace, right at the heart of, the, of, of, of social life there in the city. And that's where he begins to talk about Jesus. I don't know if there's, a, I don't know what the, the, the best comparison to the function of a marketplace in a Greek city would be in our day, in our time. But, but there, are, there are places, of course, where people gather in our society. And sometimes we as Christians feel a little uncomfortable with some of those. Sometimes we should feel uncomfortable because there are certain places, certain events that probably are completely contradictory to the gospel and, and actually would be a poor witness if you, were, if you were present there. You know, like, I don't know, a strip club? I don't know if there's any redeeming, like, go there because there are people there. Probably not, okay? Let's just say that. Don't go. There's certain places you shouldn't go. But if it's, not, if it's not contradictory to the gospel, to, to our witness as Christians, then I think that Paul gives us an example here of being present in our culture, being located in places where we are having these conversations with people. And I know for me this is challenging because I love, I mean, I, I work. I work in the church. I work as a pastor. I spend a lot of time here. I spend a lot of time with all of you. And I love it. I love it because I love you. I love the church. I love the church community. But I've also seen whether, you know, playing basketball at, at a community center or on a, on a team or whatever and, and building some relationships with people who aren't yet believers and the fruit that comes of that. And I know a lot of you are doing that already, right? You, you are located, you are present in places where you are in relationship with people, whether in school or work or whatever. That's so good. Just like Paul with culture, don't just be a kind of a passive recipient of that, but recognize that God has placed you in those networks, in those kind of spheres of, of influence, and that you are there as a witness to the kingdom of God. So be present. Those are the kind of the three, the three uh, movements. Before he's ever spoken, he's watching carefully, he's discerning, he's noticing, asking questions. He's distressed. He's allowing his heart to respond to the idolatry the same way that he has seen Jesus respond, the same way he's seen God respond. And, and then third, he is placing himself, he's being present in those, in those areas, in those realms where people in society are coming together. But I don't want you to think that if you could just check these boxes, if you could do these things, you will be the next Billy Graham. It's no guarantee of success. When Paul does these things 
and he is invited. And, and it does, I mean, it does do something, right? There's, there's an opening, there's interest. He's invited to speak on Mars Hill. We're going to look next week at what he actually says there. And so there, there's an impact here. But there are others who say, what is this babbler trying to talk about? That word, that, that referred to like a third-rate journalist, somebody who pretends to know what they're talking about but doesn't, doesn't really know. People were just making fun of him. This guy's a babbler. He's incoherent. He doesn't make any sense. See, if, if you orient your life around this, this, this mission, which we as a church have, of knowing Jesus and making him known, um, there's going to be open doors, but there also, there's always going to be hostility somewhere. From, from someone. There are going to be people who make fun of you, who mock you. That's just kind of the way it goes. We don't do these things. We don't, we don't engage in culture because of the guarantee of success. We engage our culture, engage the people around us with the gospel because we want to be faithful to the Lord and because, again, our hearts are being shaped and formed in his image. And that's what I want to come back to here at the, at, the, at the end, is again, going back to the heart of God that is at the center of all of this. Think about that most famous Bible verse, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. The world in all of its messiness, and Sheila talked about this in her testimony, all the messiness, all the brokenness, all the darkness, and yet God loved the world so much that God the Son took on flesh and made his dwelling among us. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. See, right there in that verse, you see everything that we have talked about today in Jesus, in his character. That he knows us. He's not a high priest who remains distant from us. He knows us. He has come into our midst. He understands us. Not only that, but he is, but he is present with us. And he is distressed by our idolatry and our sin. And his response to that was to offer his life as a sacrifice in our place. All the things we see Paul doing in Acts 17, Jesus did. He was present with us. He understands us. He was distressed by us. And that led him in love to give his life for us. And so I just, I want to encourage us to be shaped and formed by the incarnational love of God for us. So that we would go out and engage our culture with the incarnational love of God for them. Let's pray and then let's, let's continue in worship. God, I thank you for, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for what, what you did through Paul, for how you led him when he came to Athens. For the example he gives us of somebody who uh, didn't, didn't, didn't kind of um, fear this, this, this culture that he was entering into, wasn't intimidated by it, but rather because of the love that you had given him, Lord, engaged with this culture, 
actually noticed and saw and was present and allowed his heart to to be moved the way that your heart is moved. And so I pray, Lord, for us, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we sometimes feel really discouraged about our culture. Maybe sometimes we're tempted to just kind of disengage, to leave it, and we just want to have anything to do with it. And I pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your love, Fill us, God, with your strength, with your confidence, with your faith, so that we would engage our culture as as you do. And I pray, Lord, for those who are not yet followers of Jesus, and I, I pray, Lord, that this morning they would have heard how much you love them, how much you have done for them, That Jesus, you are our high priest who gets us, understands us, you know us, you are with us, and you gave your life so that we could be reconciled to you. And so God, in all of these things, we just pray that our hearts, our hearts would be shaped and formed into your image. In Jesus' name, amen.